Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what are we going to talk about today? We'll talk about uh, the political situation in Peru. Then we'll talk about some comments made by Ukraine's General Zeluzhny. And then we'll sort of dive into the question, what we're going to do when this Ukraine war is over. And, yeah, we'll just ponder that for a little bit. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we have Britain. They now want to officially designate China as a threat to the UK. Um, strange that they're doing this now. And even more strange when you, you know, rewind just a few years uh, back where they wanted Huawei, the Chinese telecom firm, to do their national 5G network. Uh, they were stopped by the Trump administration. But it's a very interesting turn that they've made at a very interesting time. Uh, but alas, that's what they're doing now. We have the EU set to pass another round of sanctions on Russia. What exactly they're going to be sanctioning, um, you know, of substance? Um, I, don't, I don't think there's anything left that they can sanction of substance. At this point, I'm pretty sure they're just sanctioning people. Officials within Russia's energy industry and officials within the Russian government itself Aside from that, uh, I think they've sanctioned themselves into a corner because there's nothing left to sanction, and Russia's still kicking. If I remember correctly, kicking them off of SWIFT was supposed to be the mother of all sanctions, supposed to cripple their economy, and yet, Russia still stands. So, again, as I've been saying for a long time now, if Russian... If Russia's economy grew between 2014 and 2022, when the war began, while they were under sanctions, what more were the new sanctions going to do? Because we had been steadily piling on new sanctions every, although it was every few months, you know, back then. Now it, it seems at least once a month there's a new sanctions package against Russia. But... If their economy was able to grow even while we were steadily mounting on these sanctions on them since 2014, then what were sanctions going to do to them now? That, that's the question I was asking even before the Russo-Ukrainian war began. Because it, it just didn't make sense to me. If you can put these in inhibitors on them and they still grow, well, what more are you going to be able to do? And as it turns out, nothing. We aren't able to do anything because Russia has effectively sanction-proofed their economy. And I'm sure that there are many other countries who are going to be, at the very least, making the attempt to follow suit to what Russia did and make their own economy sanction-proof. Because who wants to live in constant fear of having your economy get sanctioned because some, some bum on the other side of the ocean decided that they didn't like your government? Of course, I'm referring to us when I say the bum, 
but that's their perspective. Why does what goes on in goodness? Why is the things happening in my country your business? And what gives you the right to rob me of my ability to put food on my table? Like that's that's the perspective that is completely bypassed whenever we talk about sanctions. It's just oh we're gonna do this. We're gonna, we we need to make sure that we keep these countries in check. The sanctions have a, a, every, a, an effect on the everyday people living in these countries when we talk about sanctioning Russia, when we talk about sanctioning, potentially sanctioning China uh, as a means of, you know, standing up to them. When we talk about placing sanctions on Iran and on Syria and Iraq, sanctions don't make friends. They make enemies. And now one of these enemies that we have made for ourselves has become sanction-proof. Which means that if you you want to become sanction-proof, you're going to start working with Russia now. You're not going to start working with the United States and hope and pray that we one day don't turn, turn around and sanction you, effectively trying to cancel an entire country, cancel culture as a foreign policy is what I like to call it. No, the, more countries are not going to start to work with the United States. More countries are going to start to work with Russia. And China is probably the, the next country on the list to make their country sanction-proof if they haven't done so already. Now, they're a much bigger trading power than Russia, so I'm not sure if they can make it sanction-proof in the way that Russia has. But then again, they are a very large trading power, so perhaps most countries that trade with them just won't enforce the sanctions because they're too dependent on China. Now, whether or not we will have the scruples to, you know, not sanction them and kill ourselves economically, it remains to be seen, considering that we openly speak of going to war with them over Taiwan, which would, in effect, sanction everything that we import from them. Actually, it would go beyond that. It would embargo everything that we export and import from them. It'd be the everything embargo. So... Considering we have people who advocate for that scenario because they think that Taiwan is just that important, uh, the jury is out on whether or not we'll be smart enough not to do that. But if you're, say, I don't know, India or Iran or heck, maybe even Turkey, uh, especially Turkey now that they're making this pivot to becoming a gas hub, you're not. Why would you align yourself with the United States and hope and pray that you don't get canceled? i.e. sanction, when you could align yourself with the, the new rising block, the multipolar world, BRICS, you name it, you could, you could align yourself with them and work with them to become unsanctionable. Because Russia's not going to sanction you. China's not going to sanction you. Whatever your problems with those countries might be, they're not going to try to cancel you. You, you get into one... You do one thing that America doesn't like, oh, you're canceled, it's time to sanction you. This policy has driven many countries, even a country we thought was our ally, into the arms of these countries we label as our adversaries. And yet we still want to pursue sanctions. Now, granted, this is the EU passing these new sanctions on Russia, but it's not like we think much differently from them on the issue of sanctions. So, in, F, in effect, we make the transition to the multipolar world almost inevitable by making people 
hate everything that we do in this unipolar world, this liberal world order. It's it's like a Chinese finger trap. And the harder we try to pull to get out of the trap, uh, the more stuck we end up being. And no one seems to have the restraint to sort of ease up. And then you can get out of the trap. But the harder you pull, well, eventually the snap, the the trap breaks. But the trap is the, the global system here. But it's it, all we have to do is lay off and back off, and all this would just it would just slide off our fingers. But instead, we want to pull and pull and pull until the whole thing breaks. But uh, that that's that's sanctions. Uh, hopefully, hopefully. We can pull out of this tailspin, and hopefully the EU will get smart. And by the EU, I mean the individual member states of the EU, because the EU itself is every bit as much of a lost cause as the American government is at this point. Uh, So we have that. We have a border skirmish between India and China in the Himalayas. We have U.S. rail workers continuing their preparations for a strike. They're striking over paid sick leave. They were trying to strike before. They got shut down by Congress. So now they're trying to reorganize and figure out what their next step is. Because they haven't given up. So we'll see what happens here. I mean, you, you had the whole propaganda press come out against them, saying that they would they would kill the, the U.S. economy uh, if they struck. Because then goods wouldn't be able to be moved across the country. So, effectively, the burden of them striking was placed on them, rather than the government who raises the pay for everyone else and won't give them a sick day. So, uh, just a, if, if it wasn't clear whose side I'm on on this one. But, yeah, we have uh, an ensuing strike. We'll see if it happens or not. And uh, there was there was a little bit of a guilt trip in the Oh, the holiday seasons are coming up, so you can't do it. Otherwise, people won't get their Christmas presents. It was it was very entertaining to watch uh, the propaganda that came out against them over this. But that's other news. We have Russia continuing its missile bombing campaign over all of Ukraine. We have Russian President Vladimir Putin making a visit to the Belarusian capital Minsk for talks on further integration between... Russia and Belarus. He's speaking to Lukashenko, and if I'm, I believe Viktor Shoigu and Lavrov. I believe they went ahead of him and met with the their counterparts in Belarus uh, ahead of a, the larger summit between Putin and Lukashenko. So you have more integration, and and that's what they were there to talk about, and probably. Probably mili- military integration as well. In say a certain war and a certain country that they both have a border on, like uh, like uh, Ukraine. Hmm. Uh, but this tells me that the Union state is advancing. Uh, well, it's always advancing, but it seems like it's about to advance in a very, very noticeable way. As a few, about a month or so ago, we were talking about joint units between Russia and Belarus being formed in Belarus itself, uh, 
which itself led to talk that there might be an offensive from Russia coming into Ukraine from Belarus. So that's coming into Ukraine from the north. And should that be the case, we're looking at a whole new level of integration between the two, not just the two militaries working side by side, but actual integrated units. So rather than like having a separate unit under Belarusian command and a separate unit under Russian command and they, they fight side by side and complementary, now you have Belarusian soldiers and Russian soldiers in the same unit under the same commander. And we will see. We will see. Now they, they talk primarily uh, about economic integration and various other forms of you know the more civilian side of the integration because that's the ultimate goal for them to become one country but it's given the current situation it is inevitable that they talked about military integration as well so we will see what comes from this and we'll see if Belarus plays a larger part in the war in the coming months and then we have the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, proposing a three-way summit between himself, Vladimir Putin, and Assad of Syria. So, and he wants this to happen. The Assad government hasn't, you know, accepted it yet. But things are moving in that direction. And perhaps we'll get Iran as a party in this as well, and then we'll have the talks. But it's looking like the Syrian civil war is indeed coming to a close. And that's going to leave, as Alexander the Duran pointed out, that'll leave U.S. troops completely isolated in this country. With the Syrians against us, the Turks against us, the Russians against us, and the, the Iranians, however this goes down, they'll be against us. The Iraqis are already against us. So our troops will be isolated in this little pocket we have in northeast Syria. We could have got out, uh, but we didn't. So now we're stuck. Now we're in this unnecessary situation. But lots of movement happening. Lots of movement. But we'll get into some of the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode, and we'll start by talking about Peru, uh, which is a very strange change of pace, but you know what, Will, I'll take it, shoot, I'm a little tired of talking about Ukraine all the time, <laughs> even though I'm going to be talking about them later on this episode, but we'll get into Peru. So, a few weeks ago, I think I mentioned really, really briefly about how the Peruvian Congress removed the country's president from office. And actually, no, I think about it, I think I called the Congress a parliament last time, but it was Peru's Congress, and so I'll just issue a little correction right there. And as it happened, he was impeached and then arrested. So that that's uh, the, the way in which this went down. But the whole situation came about when the president, Pedro Castillo, that's the one who was ousted, when President Pedro Castillo tried to dissolve Congress, and this was immediately followed by the arrest of the president, because uh, surprisingly, the Congress didn't appreciate being dissolved. And it actually reminds me of a political crisis that took place in Nepal uh, 
a year and some change ago. If you remember, we talked about it every now and then, how the you had a sort of a constitutional crisis in Nepal, where the, I believe, it was either the prime minister or the president who tried to dissolve the parliament. They sort of went into a, a de facto exile, but they were still there. They just, you know, weren't supposedly allowed to be there. They refused to acknowledge the dissolution. He went about his business as though it was done, and then it went to the courts, and then the courts sort of struck it down. And it was it was a very strange situation. A very strange situation. It was eventually resolved, uh, and it. But this situation here is sort of reminding me of what happened in Nepal those years ago, where we have yet another president trying to dissolve the legislative body. And the legislative body fighting back. Now, in this case, the Congress didn't sort of go into exile. They stuck around and impeached him instead and then arrested him. So that means that he was impeached and then convicted. And this sort of happened immediately after. But right after they did this, there was a lot of people who were very upset that the Congress of Peru removed the president, and then sent him to jail. So a lot of people took to the streets in a series of protests and riots in opposition to Castillo's arrest. Now, the protesters and the rioters have called for new elections to be held to settle the issue. They want Castillo released from prison as well. They've also called for the new president, Dina Boluarte, to resign and step down from office. Those are sort of the general list of their demands that they're making as they're, you know, some protesting and others rioting, which is why I make the the distinction. And that's, uh, if I wanted to lump them in together, it sort of wouldn't be quite accurate unless I said unrest. Because th that's what it is. You know, there's unrest in this country. But I think it's important to make the distinction between protests and riots. But that's sort of what they've been demanding, some peacefully and some forcefully. But on the other side of this, though, we have the president, the new president, Boluarte. Last week, she publicly refused to step down, saying her resignation wouldn't solve anything and that everyone needed to wait to see whether the Congress would hold new elections or not. Uh... And to her credit, she is in favor of holding them. She's mainly saying that if she steps down, that's just, you know, fanning the flames of the chaos here. We'd, we would have no order and no stability. So I'm going to stick around. We're going to try to get these elections. And then it, whatever the result of the election, then I'll go. So to her credit, that's what she's talking about. But they the protesters and the, the rioters have demanded that she resign and step down. So that's sort of the, the impasse that they're at. Uh, meanwhile, you have a freeway to this impasse because the Congress would have to vote on these new elections. But when they tried to vote on it, the measure did not pass in Peru's Congress, uh, who instead appears like they want to ride this out until the next scheduled elections in 2026 which is nearly three years from now. Now, 
the publication I was reading said nearly two years, but uh, we're about to be in 2023, so that's three years. The, the next election is in three years, so if that's how long it takes, this situation, this political crisis isn't going to be resolved for potentially three years. That's a really long time. So that, that's sort of, that's the impasse that we have, a, a three-way impasse between the protesters and rioters, the, the, the people in the streets, between the new president and the Congress that ousted the old president, a three-way impasse. And meanwhile, Boluarte, in the midst of the chaos, really, has declared a 30-day state of emergency across the whole country and has accused the rioters of overflowing with violent elements, and this is why I make the distinction between the protests and rioters, she's accused them of, them of overflowing with violent elements, who she said were coordinated and not spontaneous. Now she says, quote, these groups did not emerge overnight, they had tactically organized to block the roads, end quote. So she's really not very subtly hinting here that these groups are very deliberately trying to incite the chaos. That's sort of what she's claiming here. And again, not very subtly. She's essentially trying to paint them as being either terrorist groups within the country, rebel groups of some kind, or perhaps even perhaps even revolutionaries who want to overthrow the government and want to use the the chaos of the riots and protests to do that. That's sort of the direction she's moving in. Now, she hasn't made claims that far, but that's the direction she's moving into with these claims when she says that they are coordinated rather than spontaneous. She's saying that this is a deliberate opposition to the government itself and to the legitimacy of the government. So, that's sort of the light that she's painting this in. Now, the, the people in the streets obviously disagree with that, and they don't even think she's a, a rightful president. They think that the rightful president is sitting in a jail cell. So there's, again, we have an impasse. And this situation has left around 5,000 tourists stranded in Peru, as the Cusco International Airport was closed after some of the protesters tried to enter the terminal, and they shut the terminal down. Now, Cusco is where people go to first when they want to go see the Machu Picchu, which is why the airport in Cusco is so important, because now you have 5,000 people stranded, because that's where the airport is, but the airport is closed, so they can't leave. And you have... Uh, I believe there were government and military helicopter flights picking up tourists from other parts of the location and taking them to the Cusco International Airport so that they could eventually leave and sort of getting them all into a central location. Hopefully nothing happens. I don't I don't think that that's I don't think that they're the target of the rioters or the protesters for that matter. But once you get into mob mentality, strange things can happen that you know are way off the mark for what people actually wanted. So, we'll just hope and pray that nothing bad happens to these people, and hope and pray that nothing bad happens to the Peruvians themselves. I mean, there were, I believe, at least 16 confirmed deaths 
from the unrest. So there is a death toll in this. Hopefully it stays low, but we we have a good bit of chaos going on in Peru. And given that the Congress has failed to pass a measure on holding new elections, this chaos could go on for a while. Again, now the Congress could pass a measure where they do hold these elections. And they don't wait three years until the next scheduled election in 2026. But that remains to be seen. Maybe Boluarte will step down. Although, she's kind of right when she says it won't solve anything, because she'll just be replaced with someone else. And the old president still won't be back. He'll be in a jail cell. So, we'll see what comes from this, but there's sort of, there's my little update to the Peru story. As it's gotten juicily interesting over these past few, yeah, past few weeks. We'll see what becomes of it. But now, I want to get into General Zeluzhny. Now, he's Ukraine's top general. Uh, Val- Valery Zeluzhny. Uh, yeah, he's a man. Uh, so I know Valery in America is a feminine name, but in the East, and I mean Eastern Europe, Valery is a men's name. So it's a bit of a cultural difference. Very interesting. But General Valery Zeluzhny... He gave an interview to The Economist uh, last week, and he began, he began by saying that Ukraine would win and that they would fight until the very end until they did. So, I mean, it's good that your commander-in-chief at the very least believes you're going to win, but that belief did come with some caveats. Uh, those caveats being that he doesn't think they have enough men or equipment to get the victory, but he believes that they can achieve it. Uh, while he was giving the interview, he uh, confirmed that Ukrainian forces are gradually being pushed out of Bakhmut and Marinka. Uh, this was at the time of his, you know, giving this interview. As of now, Marinka has been taken. Marinka has been taken by Russia, which means even more pressure on Bakhmut from more angles. And I even hear now that the Russians are storming Bakhmut itself. And you have street fighting, and the Russians are trying to encircle the Ukrainians in the city from within the city, like moving along the outskirts of the city to cut them off from the inside. Because once you're in the city, you can use the urban terrain as cover from enemy artillery. And then you can just trap everyone inside the city without having to capture the countryside around the city, although the Russians are trying to capture the countryside around the city as well. As is the case, uh, as is exemplified with the taking of Marinka. But back to Zeluzhny, he's confirmed that Ukrainian forces were being gradually pushed out of Bakhmut and gradually out of Marinka. Marinka's already fallen, but he didn't know that at the time of this. He says that Ukraine's troops in these battles are running out of supplies, uh, specifically for Bakhmut and Marinka. He's, he went on to say that they were, his army was being bled. It was being bled dry uh which has sort of been the sort of been the accepted phrase for this current phase in the war uh, Russia bleeding Ukraine dry or Ukraine being put into the meat grinder those sorts of those sorts of statements have become common not just among some of these the internet analysts of the war 
but among the people involved in it themselves. He says that Ukraine had over 700,000 men, but that only around 200,000 were properly trained for combat, and the number he gave was 190,000. So, he, he believes that they can win, but that they're under-equipped, they're being bled dry, uh, they're, they're losing men, essentially. Uh, the combat-ready men, more specifically. He l listed the equipment that he believes his army needs in order to pull off the victory he believes they can achieve, saying that they need 300 tanks, 800 infantry fighting vehicles, and 500 artillery pieces. He said that Ukraine's army, uh, again, was being bled dry. And he said that Russia's mobilization was successful and that Russia could mobilize another million and a half if they wanted to. So, he's saying we need all this extra equipment and, obviously, the ammunition for all this equipment as well. What, what's a tank if it doesn't have a shell? What's an artillery piece if you don't have the ammo for it? So... Not just 500 artillery pieces and 300 tanks and 800 infantry fighting vehicles. We need the oil for this. So we need the gasoline so that we can make all of them run. The tanks and the fighting vehicles run. We need the shells so that we can put these 500 pieces of artillery and these 300 tanks to good use and shoot at the enemy. Where exactly he's going to get these 300 tanks, 800 fighting vehicles, and 500 artillery pieces is beyond me because no one in Europe has 300 tanks to spare. I mean, America kind of does. We have a few thousand. But I don't think we're going to give it. And plus, the Abrams is really heavy. The, Ab the Abrams is really, really heavy. And the terrain, as of right now, isn't exactly going to be conducive to the use of the Abrams. Maybe it'll be more effective in the winter. Although, again, our vehicles aren't exactly designed for the winter, or for Eastern Europe, for that matter. They're really designed for the Middle East and North America. Because that's where we are, and that's where we are primarily, that's where we are active most. So, what the uh, technically, we could supply him with these tanks. And technically, we could supply him with the infantry fighting vehicles... We wouldn't be able to supply him with the artillery piece. We wouldn't be able to do that, and we would, and we certainly wouldn't be able to give him the ammo he needed. He's asking for with these artillery pieces, because they're running through thousands a day. We're producing. <laughs> they're running through like five thousand artillery pieces in a day, where we're making we're making fifteen thousand in a month. So they're they're running through years worth of our ammunition production and this is just the ammunition side they're running through years worth of production in a month every month so how exactly we would even if we got them all these these military vehicles and the artillery we wouldn't be able to get them the ammunition and that's before you get into the fact that we're not going to give it to them but he says that they needed those things to win and that Russia can still mobilize further if they wanted to, so he's really emphasizing a quick victory, a relatively quick victory, before Russia decides to mobilize that extra million men. He said that he expects a Russian winter offensive sometime in February 
uh, although he fears it could come earlier. Now, me, I thought the winter offensive was going to come sometime in late November, early December, but looking at the terrain now, I see why that wasn't the case. It's muddy. It's really, really muddy in in, uh, Ukraine and Eastern Europe right now. So that's not the type of terrain you want to send a tank into. I mean, Ukrainian tanks and vehicles are getting stuck in the mud right now. And I'm sure the Russians are dealing with that on their end as well. But, you know, they're obviously not going to send an extra couple hundred tanks and extra couple hundred fighting vehicles into that kind of terrain. So that estimate was wrong due to the weather. But what happened? So now what some people are saying, and this is uh, Colonel McGregor, I'm turning to Colonel McGregor on this one, that the Russians are going to wait for the, the ground to harden when it gets really, really cold. And it has to, it has to freeze solid, basically. The ground has to freeze, because it can't just be like frozen uh, for a few inches on top. Because once you get moving, well, now you're you're going to be going for a little bit, and then you're going to get into the mud. So you got you got to let the ground freeze and really harden all the way through before you can start talking about winter offensives. So he puts it sometime late December to February. Now that's sort of the time frame he's working with. That's what we're looking at right now. Although given that we're already in, well, we're in mid December, so. I'll, I'll say the offensive is likely to happen sometime next year. Uh, there's even speculation it might happen on the anniversary of Russia's initial invasion. Because, I mean, that was a winter offensive, technically. <laughs> so, perhaps we could be looking at February-March invasion rather than a, a actual winter offensive. But, we will see. Um fears that the winter offensive will come and that he won't. He he. I don't want to say that he doesn't believe he's going to be able to stop it because that's not what he's saying. But you could tell that he's disturbed by the idea, because he's looking at the situation. There's no way Russia's only going to have these three hundred thousand troops plus the hundred and sixty thousand they already had just only attack from the south. He's looking at this and saying, okay. They have, they already have a hundred and sixty something thousand people in the south, probably up to around two hundred thousand with the mobilized units. Right. They have units moving into Belarus. They might attack from the north, and they're probably going to attack us again from the Kharkov region with a force of perhaps a hundred thousand or more, or perhaps fifty thousand. You know, you know, not all of these are going to be combat troops. A lot of them are more logistics based. So. We might see forces of 50,000 on each flank, in the additional flanks, and perhaps the north and the Kharkov region. If they choose to come from these other axes, we don't know yet, but if you're a Zaluzhny, you got to think, okay, they might attack us with 50,000 combat troops from the north, support it with some extra th- couple, extra few tens of thousands of troops. They might attack us with another 50,000 or 80,000 coming f- from the Kharkov region. Okay, uh, then they are, they already have 100,000 in, in the Donbass uh, and along the... The corridor to Crimea, okay, so they could attack us from three different angles, and we're struggling with one. We took enormous losses taking care of us on, we took enormous losses taking back territory in the Kharkov offensive. The Kherson offensive was slaughtered en masse when we tried it the first time, then the Russians pulled back and we, we got Kherson City, 
So we're losing ground, actively losing ground in the Donbass. We, how well are we going to be able to afford two more fronts? How well are we going to be able to deal with that? Because he put the number out there. The Ukrainian army, in terms of men who were combat ready, is now down to 190,000. Whereas we've been working with uh, 350,000. So he's looking at that reduced figure of combat ready men and saying, okay, Russia's coming for the, the attack. They're about to go back on the attack. We're going to get hit from multiple angles. That, that, that's, what that's what we're looking at. That's what we're fearing. We're struggling with one front, but we're looking at potentially three. How are we going to deal with this? I need, I, I need more artillery. I need more tanks. I need more fighting vehicles. I need a mechanized army. That I can move around and sort of deal with these different uh, fronts and be able to move troops from one front to the other quickly to deal with any holes that might get opened up. And I, I, I need to be able to do that. Otherwise, I, I'm just not going to be able to stop this offensive. I'm just not going to be able to stop it if I can't. So he's looking at a Russian winter offensive. He believes it's going to come. And he, he believes it's going to happen by February. And that's sort of the picture he's looking at, you know, this me assuming that that's all that he's looking at. Uh, he's probably looking at even more than that because he has actual military intelligence and, and that being the United States. So just from what we can see that he's looking at, he's looking at not the best picture. He's looking at a, a not very fun picture either. And he's down to 190,000 combat ready men. He claims to have 700,000 men, uh, but only around 190 of that is combat ready, which does leave you with another half a million in manpower. But those are effectively conscripts, untrained militias, if you will. So what exactly you'd be able to rely on them for in the face of professional Russian forces, because these are Russian reservists and active duty troops moving in on you. How well could you deal with that? We don't know yet. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. And I have a feeling that they'll eventually be forced to be deployed. But if you deploy these troops, these, these additional troops to try to bolster your numbers on these different fronts, there goes your manpower pool. Because if it's taking you 190,000 to cover the South, and the Russians attack with, say, 50 to 80,000 combat troops from two more axes, well, you're, you're going to need to come close to matching those numbers. You can't Being outnumbered isn't good when you're on the defensive. It's worse if you're on the offensive, but it's really bad if you're on the defensive because then your enemy can start to maneuver around you and hit you from different angles and start, you know, really endangering your position and forcing you to give up good defensives in exchange for keeping your units alive. So you're going to have to put forces up that are at least comparable to the potential offensive uh, pincers that are going to come into Ukraine. Maybe that's only one additional front. Maybe that's two. Maybe that's five because the Russians spread it out just a little bit but they're all close enough to where they might be able to support each other. We don't know how the Russians are going to go in. 
And that's probably keeping this man up at night. If we're, you know, really, really putting ourselves in his shoes. You have absolutely no clear, no clue how exactly the Russians are going to come in. Because if they come in from the north, you have to give battle. That, that's where Kiev is. If they come in from the north, Kiev is, what, less than, less than 100 miles from the Belarusian border? If Russia comes in from Belarus, they, they don't have to cross the Dnieper. In Ukraine, they can cross it in Belarus and then come down. So you can't even use the Dnieper as a defensive line. You, you have to give battle. You don't have, you don't have the option. Because that, that's where your government is. That's where your leader is. You have to give back. Kiev is the one place in this war, aside from the Donbass, where the Ukrainians cannot deny battle. So if the Russians come in from the north, you're a Zeluzhny. you got to look at this. Okay, now I have to put up, what, 50,000, 80,000 men in, from my reserves, because I can't take men off the, off the line in the Donbass. I have to take that from my reserves and slap them across the front line to try to slow the Russians down. We have to start digging trenches everywhere to try to make a defensive line out of thin air and try to you know, slow down the Russian advance in the same way that we've done in the Donbass, except we don't have the rough terrain that we would in the Donbass. The terrain in northern Ukraine isn't the best for defense. Like, once you get past the marshes, it's a wrap. So, they're looking at a really bad situation. And if Russia if Russia attacks from the north, and then they attack from Kharkov, well, now you have to put up another 50,000 men from your reserve. And then they're going to get bled dry. Assuming they don't just get outmaneuvered and destroyed by Russian armored columns. Now you're looking at a, a real problem. Because they're not entrenched. They're not dug in. You don't have a, a consolidated line. You could actually lose more men in a single battle than you've lost in the entire war. And you've already lost half your force. Like, this is... He's facing an impossible position. He's putting on a brave face and saying that he can win. And maybe he does believe that. But from my perspective, putting myself in his shoes, I am dealing with an impossible situation here. I am dealing with an impossible situation, but uh, now that we sort of put ourselves in his shoes for a moment, let's take a step back a bit, because I, I, w I really want to get into that uh, that 190k figure that he put for the the uh, oh goodness for the the combat effective troops that he still has, because assuming that Zeluzhny is even telling the truth here and not sort of playing a a game of deception to throw off the enemy, which he could have been doing. Uh, you know, it's it would be smart, but well, let's just assume that he's telling the truth on that figure. If we assume that, then that would mean Ukraine's army has been reduced to nearly half of the 350,000 number that we've been using as our primary figure for this entire war when we talk about the size of the Ukrainian army. 190, they've gone from 350 to 190,000. That's not far off from the size of the uh, the Russian force that they used in the initial invasion. 
which was around 160 to 200,000 troops. We're talking about something close to the high end of that uh, some, that figure, closer to the 200,000, but close enough to the 160,000 to where it's it's really comparable. And that was a force that Russia invaded Ukraine on from multiple sides. They used that 160,000, 200,000 troops, invaded Ukraine from multiple axes, stole Ukraine, stole half of Ukraine's Black Sea coastline, walked to Kiev and back, walked to Kharkov and back, and they've been defending their gains in the south ever since. And the Ukrainians, while outnumbering the Russians, have struggled immensely trying to take that piece of territory back. And they've struggled so much that the Russians have been able to annex them formally. The Donbass Republics, Luhansk and Donetsk, Zaporozhye, and Kherson. They've annexed them all. Ukraine just is not able to take these territories back. So... Given that they've struggled that much against anywhere from 160,000 to 200,000 Russian troops, and they've lost half their army dealing with that force, what, what does that bode for them now that Russia is mobilizing, or coming up towards the end of the mobilization, quite frankly? Now the Russia is finishing the mobilization of the 300,000 additional troops. And there's also reportedly 80,000 volunteers who are not counted in that 300,000 number. 80,000 volunteers in Russia who are also going to be deployed. Which, if true, would mean that Russia is bringing nearly 400,000 men to the battle space in Ukraine on top of the 160 they already went in with. So they've withered down Ukraine's army to about even with their own initial force, using only said initial force, and then tripled the size of their invasion force. Russia began this war outnumbered 2 to 1, but is now about to outnumber Ukraine nearly 3 to 1. Russia's not running out of ammunition. Russia has everything that Zeluzhny is asking for, those 300 tanks. 800 infantry fighting vehicles, 500 artillery. The Russians have that. And they could double that if they wanted to. They have it all. They're not in want for military vehicles. They're not in want of ammunition for the the vehicles. They haven't even really used their air force yet. And now they're they're just bombing the Ukrainians with these missiles. I mean, you, you combine the... What's about to be a 3 to 1 uh, force deployment ratio in Russia's favor. 3 to 1. You combine that with the now constant missile and drone bombardment on Ukrainian infrastructure, which is really starting to hit the power grid hard. Like uh, I, I'm getting numbers now that the Ukrainian power grid is at like 50% operational. You keep this up for a few more weeks... You're talking maybe 20%, 15%. How are you going to fight a modern war in that type of situation? How are you going to communicate? Well, you'll use radios, obviously. But what happens when the Russians start using jammers? It's When you combine these things, 
it really doesn't paint a good picture for Ukraine. It really, really doesn't. And for the first time in this war, I think we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But the light is shining on greater Russia and not on Ukraine. That That's what we're looking at here. Because, uh, I mean, there's talk about how the war in Ukraine is at a crossroads. And I think that that is an appropriate term. The war is at a crossroads. Or at the very least, at a very pivotal moment. It's at a very pivotal moment. But from what I'm looking at here, it seems that all those predictions of doomsday for the Ukrainians are now, those predictions are now coming into view, right? Because a number of people have been predicting that Ukraine's going to lose the war, they're going to be demolished, the Russians are grinding them down, then they're going to go in for the attack. I'm not the only one who's been saying that. That's just what I've been thinking was going to happen all along. I thought it would happen back in February, quite frankly. A lot of people did. But then the Russians took it slow. Uh, the vast majority of people swapped their opinion to believing that Russia was losing and floundering in Ukraine. But now, it's looking like all of those assumptions, that those faulty assumptions that people have sort of latched onto, are about to come crashing down. Because what do you say? Like, if... Like, I'm sure if you're listening to me, you, you're probably on board with me in that we think that Russia's going to win this and Ukraine's going to lose. And perhaps you're a better person than I am and you'll say we need to negotiate a peace on behalf of the Ukrainians to stop the fighting. Now me, I'll just, I'll just leave. Uh, I'll take a page out of the book of the Founding Fathers and cut the separate peace. <laughs> but maybe, maybe you're a better man than me and you'll go for the peace deal. But you you got to be looking at this. And what we've been talking about looks like it's about to come. It looks like it's about to come. A whole year later, but it's coming. Now put yourself in the shoes of someone who's been on the Ukraine hype train from the, from the start. Or at the very least from about a month after the war began, where people changed their opinions to believing that Ukraine was going to win. Imagine you're on that hype train, and you're and you're looking at the the territory that Ukraine has taken back from Russia. It's oh, it's it's only a matter of time before Ukraine wins. Russia's getting beaten. They're 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 floundering. They're they're weak and incompetent. They're they're a paper tiger. We're we're learning now that Russia isn't as strong as we thought they were. Imagine you're on that you know, in that frame of mind, and you're reading news articles and publications and listening to, um analysts and commentators on YouTube who are sort of speaking into that frame of mind, that same frame of mind, imagine you're there. What do you say then when the Russians move in from Belarus a second time and Ukraine has no answer to that? What do you say then when the Russian Air Force starts screaming over the Ukraine in a real way? Because they've I, I, I have no clue where the Russian Air Force has been this entire war. I, I'll, I'll just be completely frank with you. I have no clue where they've been. They've been on retirement. 
They've been on vacation. What happens when they come into play? And you get a, a Russian strategic bombing campaign like what we did in every war we did in Iraq. What happens when the Russian T-90s and T-14 Armadas start crossing the border in their winter offensive? Russia did all of this while outnumbered two to one. So what happens now that the Russians are outnumbering Ukrainians three to one? Now that Russia has the numerical superiority. What happens now? And not to mention that the Ukrainians were juiced up on all those weapons and ammunition we gave them and all that money. Now, well, I can't speak for the money. Uh, that's, that's a whole other story. Money laundering, uh, you name it. But now that the weapons are not sufficient and are actually breaking because of overuse, and now that they just don't have the ammunition, they're running out of ammunition because we can't give it to them fast enough for them to keep up with the Russians. What do you say? When the Russians start rolling them over. I mean, Russia's making more progress in the Donbass than they've made in a long time. They're about to take Bakhmut. They're about to take Bakhmut. And once Ukraine loses the Donbass, they lose all that urban landscape, all that rough terrain of those hills. It's really hilly over there. They lose that. And then they have to fight Russia in the flat, wide open of central Ukraine? As winter is about to come? Imagine you're on that Ukraine hype train and you have the bumper sticker, stop Putin, stop war. You have Ukraine flags flying in the front of your house. And you have I, I, I stand with Ukraine in your, your Twitter bio. What do you say when the Russians start rolling over this country that you've invested in so much emotionally and that you have sort of been lulled into believing was going to win? By the propaganda machine and the people who unfortunately failed to sufficiently question the propaganda machine. And when the Russians start rolling into Lviv and Kiev and Odessa, you're on this Ukraine hype train. What do you say to that? What, what is there to say, quite frankly, other than, wow, I've been taken for a ride. Like, I can only imagine what that's going to be like for a lot of people. Or, or perhaps uh, I can only imagine what that's going to be like for myself if I end up being wrong. <laughs> but I can only imagine what that's going to be like. And I don't think we're going to have to wait very long to get an answer to that. What do you say? Because I think we're about to find out what a lot of these people are going to say. But well, I don't want to just end with that question. Because... When that day comes and Russia, you know, reminds everyone that they are, in fact, a great power and not some fourth rate has been that everyone has, you know, lulled themselves into believing about Russia because they took it slow on Ukraine. When the war ends, which it will, what happens next? What do we do when this is over? We've invested so heavily into this Ukraine project. Sanctions, uh, financial aid. Oh, we have to help the Ukrainians. We, we, need to, we need to keep them paid and make sure they have work and clothes and food and, and heat. 
Oh, we need to take in the refugees. What are we going to do? What are we going to do when all that comes crashing down? Because the war has to end. And it's looking like the Russians are going to be the ones to end it, not the Ukrainians. What do we do? What what will we lose? I mean, we're looking at losing... Uh, I talk about over-investing. We're not talking about losing a couple hundred dollars on a bad stock trade. We're talking about losing a hundred billion in direct financial aid. Tens of billions in military equipment. All that's going down the drains. A third of our HIMARS ammunition. All that's going straight down the drain and right into a Russian warehouse for the Russian military. And if it's not going into the, the Russian military warehouses, it's going to land into the black market to go to God knows who, God knows where. So what? How are we going to deal with that? The, I mean, I remember Scott Ritter talking about that possibility back in the summer. I believe it was July. And as the, as time goes on and we start finding these weapons in more and more strange locations, I remember... One story saying we were finding weapons in Nigeria. What other strange places are we going to start finding American weapons in? And maybe that's not even... And here's, here's the crazy part. Maybe those weapons weren't even given to them by the Ukrainians. Maybe they were sold by the Afghanis. Let's not forget about Afghanistan. They have plenty of U.S. weapons that they can sell too. So we'll give... The Russians plenty of weapons, and the Afghanis already have lots of weapons, and lots of weapons have made their way into the black market already as a result of the, the war in Ukraine. So we're going to have to deal with that fallout. How are we going to deal with that? No one knows. No one's even thinking about that. I mean, people, back when we lost in Afghanistan, people, one, of the first things came out people, one of the first things that came out of people's mouth was, what does this say to our allies? And I'm like, you have missed the plot completely. We have whole citizens stranded in this country. And you're worried about what a damn ally has to say about it? Fuck the ally. <laughs> Fuck the allies. Get my people out of there. And they're still stranded to this day. A good number of them. We don't know how many. Well, yeah, we don't know. But I'm sure the Pentagon does. And they don't want to tell us. Because it'll make them look even shittier than they already look. But people who were afraid that so afraid that we were going to lose standing with our allies well when Ukraine goes down we will lose even more standing because we drag the entire NATO alliance along with us for this ride only to drive off a cliff there Europe will never forgive us for what we did here if they're smart you know I'll just say that and as a, on a side note if Taiwan's smart they'll cut a separate piece with China while they still can Instead of letting us drag them along for a ride and ending up in even even worse position than the Europeans. They'll end up like Ukraine 2.0. I'm already starting to see uh, some more videos coming out. I believe I saw a, a Binkov, Binkov's Battleground video where he... he the, the title of it was How Ukraine's Not Taiwan 2... <laughs> the title of it was How Taiwan is Not Gonna End Up Like Ukraine. Uh, it's not going to be Ukraine 2.0, and here's why. Uh, I can refute that all day and night, as mad I have, multiple times. But, 
we're all we're already starting to see that pivot. So if there was any doubt that Taiwan was next, well, let there be no doubt anymore. But we're starting to see that uh, if Taiwan's smart, if if you're smart, you won't end up like Ukraine because you're gonna side with the country that's not gonna get you killed, China. Now maybe that's not the most comfortable thing to do, but if you side with us, you're gonna die. You're not gonna have a country. It, it's you either side with side with the enemy. Or you side with your friend who wants to push you off the cliff, who wants you to jump off the bridge with them, except we're not jumping off the bridge. We're letting you do that. Uh, it does. And when this war is over, as it will be, will NATO survive? Like, sure, we can look at the position of military weakness that all of Europe is going to be in after handing over all of our weapons and equipment to the Ukrainians. I mean, Germany their latest and greatest air defense system, they weren't even giving that to their own military. They were giving it to the Ukrainians as it came off the production lines. It it, it got diverted away from their military and went straight to the Ukrainians. And guess what? It's going to go straight to the Russians when the war is over. So all of our best and uh, finest equipment is going to be f- acutely analyzed by the, the best Russian scientists and military engineers that they have. So they can... If necessary, reverse engineer all of our stuff, everything we have to offer, making Russia into the most potent military force on the planet, uh, particularly as a land power. Now, they can't reverse engineer a ship, but granted, they have anti-ship missiles, so they don't need to do that. So, perhaps NATO will survive off of Europe's military weakness, but what of Europe's dissidents? The people protesting in the street over the fact that they are going to be cold and that they don't have gas and that they, their electricity bills are ridiculously high. These people who are blaming NATO for the war, or rather accurately, some of them are going to end up in government. So will they stick to NATO or will they agitate to leave? Will they leave? Who knows? Uh, I, it's hard. To, it's hard to imagine that side, of, that sort of thing, and how exactly that would go down. But given the extent to which we have absolutely sabotaged the Europeans, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe a country in Central Europe or Western Europe were to leave NATO. And while we're talking about Europe, how long is it going to take for them to recover from this war? That that, that they didn't even fight. They didn't even fight, and yet they're. They're in, in destitution because they have no energy. They were depending on Russian energy. And then they sanctioned Russia with no alternative. So when the war is over, do they go back to Russian natural gas? You're going to have to fix the Nord Stream pipelines and the pipelines in Ukraine. You're going to have to fix those. How long is that going to take? Who knows? However long the Russians feel like. You want us to fix it faster? Undo the sanctions. That's how that's going to go down. But will they? Will they be able to sort of endure that embarrassment, endure that humiliation, and undo the sanctions for the good of their own people and the good of their own country? Or will they go down with the ship? Will they Will they go back to Russian natural gas? Or will they, you know, refuse and try to find other energy? 
I've constantly been proposing coal and nuclear energy sources that all of Europe has and all of Europe can use and that they don't need to depend on you know foreign imports for too much that would mean the death of the green agenda overnight but that'd be a good thing for humanity really get down to the anti-humanist aspect of the green agenda I mean if, if humans are the cause of climate change and the whole goal is to reduce CO2 emissions and humans breathe out CO2. And if the production of solar panels and wind turbines produces more CO2 than those energy sources will save over their lifetime, then that means we can't reduce our CO2 consumption. So the only way to reduce CO2 emissions then is through removal of people. Because the people produce the CO2. We breathe it out. If your goal is to reduce CO2, then inevitably, the solution is going to be to get rid of more people. Get rid of people. That's, that's the solution. That's the inevitable solution. The, the final solution, if you will. If getting rid of CO2 is the goal, eventually you have to deal with the, the cretins that you blame for the climate crisis. Who just so happen to exhale CO2 every time they breathe. That's that's the, the anti-humanist side of the green agenda. Not to mention that if you take away the energy inputs necessary for industry. The energy inputs that made the industrial revolution possible. Then you gradually take away the benefits of industry. And the benefits of the industrial revolution which means you take away the ability to support large numbers of people. We only had barely uh, a billion people. We Actually, we didn't even have a billion people in 1800. And then the Industrial Revolution comes along and we suddenly are able to support 2 billion by 1945. And then 8 billion today. You take away the Industrial Revolution and the industry necessary to make it possible... And the energy necessary to make the industry possible, you take away the ability to support such large numbers of people. It's depopulation. The green agenda will lead to depopulation. So, will Europe commit to this and lose more people? Or will they go to coal and nuclear? Or will they allow themselves to deindustrialize and be depopulated? What happens to the Ukrainian refugees? Will, will they return home? Will they stay in Europe? Will... Will they go to Russia? Well, home might actually end up being Russia for a lot of them. Will we learn our lesson and stop trying to intervene everywhere? Or will we choose to double and triple down on the next intervention, which is likely to be Taiwan? Will we choose to double, triple down on that because we didn't fully commit to Ukraine and look what happened? They fell to the Russians. We can't allow that to happen to Taiwan because Taiwan is uh, critical for U.S. democracy. And, and what does it say to our allies? And All the usual talking points. The same disaster will wait us, except worse. When this war is over, how many other countries who are currently aligned with us will be so fed up with how we led them, we led them to the slaughter how many of them are going to be so fed up with us that they go their own way? Because Turkey's already doing that. Saudi Arabia is already doing that. 
Japan looks like it's getting ready to do that. And the same goes for South Korea. How many, how many countries who we thought were with us are going to go their own way as a result of our objectively failed leadership on this major issue? And the flip side, how many other countries who were afraid of us will watch this debacle and feel emboldened enough to move into active opposition to us when this is over? Viewing Russia and China as their champions. Those are some things we need to start thinking about. As the war now visibly looks like it's about to start winding down. Those are some of the questions we're going to maybe get answers to in the next few months. Maybe we'll have to wait years to find out the answer to these. But these are just some of the things that have started to cross my mind. As I'm looking at the situation in Ukraine. And how you're starting to get these generals coming out and really... Painting a bleak picture with a brave face. That, that's the best way I can put the Zeluzhny uh, interview. Painting a bleak picture while keeping a brave, while putting on a brave face. He says Ukraine's going to win, but he needs all that equipment. In order to win, he's not going to get that equipment. So if he needs that equipment to win, then what he's really saying is he's going to lose. He's going to lose. And it's, it's really, look, when you look at all these numbers and how they stack up, and when you look at what Russia was capable of while outnumbered, and now you see that the Russians are going to be the ones outnumbering Ukraine, it, it just does, it doesn't look good for Ukraine. The war looks like it's about to enter into the third and final phase. And the end of the war will have consequences and a lot of questions. And the ones that we went through are just some of them. I imagine that as the actual end of the war comes into view, uh, and we start to see what the picture actually looks like on the other side of the tunnel, we, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But when we get there and we start to actually see what's on the other side, perhaps we'll be able to get a clearer view of what the big questions of the day will be then. And what the big issues of that day, the unresolved issues of the war, will be at that point in time. But alas, that is a story that we will cover on another day. But that is all I have for you today, my lovely listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. Ukraine looks like it's about to enter the third and final phase And we will watch that together. Now, I've been your host, Hyshawn Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, servus.